Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Schein. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, uh, the Cyber Center of Excellence practice leader here at Marsh McLennan Agency. I am here with a very special guest this morning, uh, Michelle Schapp. Good morning, Mark. Michelle, thanks for joining today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, so Michelle, um, you know, before we get to the the great work that you're able to do for uh, your clients over at CSG, I really want to know about the girl that grew up in Jersey. How did she get into this world of cyber and helping her clients and advising from a privacy perspective? Well, first of all, I am a proud Jersey girl. For listeners who hold it against me, I'm really sorry. I'm not from Long Island. I am Jersey through and through. In terms of how I got here, you first have to start with how I got into the law. When I was in eighth grade, I had a wonderful geography teacher, and our assignment was to do a mock trial. And Mark is too young to remember this, but this involved Patty Hearst. Okay. And the way we told the story was that if Patty had hired me and my friend, she would have gotten off. We weren't barred yet, and Effley Bailey didn't do the right job. But that's what got me into the law as that's where I wanted to go. Where in the law I wanted to go, I honestly didn't know yet. I just knew I was going to law school. And when I was in law school, I had several terrific courses. And I also had the opportunity to work every summer, every Christmas at what was then called Kramer 11. When I was at Kramer 11, I was, and I know this is politically incorrect, but I was a gal Friday, which meant that I worked in every area of the firm for four years, summer and Christmas. I worked in the accounting group. I was switchboard and reception. I was assistant to the managing attorney. I pinch hit as a legal secretary. And while I was there, there were only three women partners. And I took each one of them out to lunch. And I grilled them. And I said, what's it like to be a woman partner? How did you get to be a woman partner? And keep in mind, this was in the 80s, mm-hmm. when there weren't a lot of women in the law, let alone women partners. And one of them said to me, frankly, I made the choice not to have a family and focused on my career. One of them was a litigator known as a barracuda, and she said, oh, it's really simple. My husband is Mr. Mom, which really wasn't the role that I saw myself in or my future husband. Sure. The third one was a T&E attorney, trust and estate, and she said the only way you can juggle law and a family is to be a trust and estate attorney because you rarely have an emergency. And as much as I enjoyed my T&E class, it's not where I saw myself going. And fortunately, my then boyfriend, now husband of 32 years, was of the mind that just as important as his career should be, mine was as well. And so when I started out, I was at a firm that allowed us to rotate. And I got to explore different areas of the law. And oddly enough, I actually started out doing land use primarily, which is a far cry from cyber. But that was my original passion. And the rest evolved along the way. So, 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 Michelle, how did you, so thinking about land use, how does somebody get from land use to cyber? And I know that there's got to be a lot in between from some of the, the corporate work that you've done from traveling overseas. Can you give the listeners just a little bit more background in terms of some of the diligence you're able to do in the corporate, corporate world as well as when you were overseas? Well, it's interesting, Mark, because land use allowed you to learn what your client's 
immediate needs were and potentially long-term needs because land use involved potentially just planning for a tent sale or for an expansion of a business. And that could have long-term ramifications for a business. And that was really my first opportunity where I was getting to know a business, not just from a one-minute check-in for this isolated piece of litigation, but rather what's their long-term goal and why does this application matter to the business strategy? As we also talked about, I then practiced in Tokyo for two years. And in Tokyo, the criteria was if it was in English, it was on my desk. Okay. And in that role, I saw all sorts of transactions, whether it was a bond transaction, whether it was investment in a golf course, whether it was leasing of aircraft, you name it, I did it. And so I became what was then not uncommon, a generalist. And again, going back to my original experience with the firm that I was with for two years, having rotated, and now seeing everything in Japan with my practice, and it was an international practice, I was getting very broad experience. I then came back to the U.S. and was in-house at Toys R Us. And my title was general attorney, which you say, oh, great, so what does a general attorney do? The implication is just as it sounds. I did everything from a legal standpoint for the company other than very unique areas. I had nothing to do with their employment, internal employment issues. I didn't handle the slip and falls. That was handled by a different area. And one of the other women I worked with handled the international trademark portfolio. I was managing the litigation for the company. I was managing the U.S. portfolio with the woman who I alluded to in terms of their branding. And I was negotiating all of their commercial agreements. And in that same period, I was starting to see how the business was evolving. So this was when Costco first came into being. And for the millennials that are listening to this, they all grew up with Costco. Hmm. Costco didn't exist initially, and that became a real challenge for Toys R Us. And I watched Toys R Us go through these issues of, okay, how do we continue to be brick and mortar? Do we franchise? Do we go online? Do we go online ourselves, or do we go online at that time potentially with Yahoo as a partner? And they were struggling with those growing pains. I then left Toys R Us to go back into private practice, and my practice evolved with my clients. Several of my clients in early 2000 said, what's this e-commerce? Mm -hmm. And by the way, I understand I'm supposed to have a privacy policy. So I cut and paste the privacy policy from the Amazon website. That's okay, right? And I said to my small mom and pop client or whomever it might be, well, that depends. Do you have the same procedures and technology that Amazon does? Because the answer is no, you probably shouldn't be cutting and pasting their policy and saying it's yours. Michelle, when you when you were a generalist, do you feel like that experience helped you now that you're a specialist in a, a very well-respected specialist within the cyber community? No question. Because cyber touches everything. It doesn't just touch e-commerce. It touches HR. It touches your supply chain. It touches your upstream obligation. It touches on your insurance evaluations. Okay, so this is what's in my data. Mark, tell me what insurance do I need? And as a counselor to those clients, half of them don't know the questions to ask. And if they're savvy enough to know the questions to ask, they don't know the answers and they don't necessarily know where to find the answers. And if I don't understand the business as a whole, I'm not going to give them a whole solution. I will only give them maybe a window into what they need. 
So, Michelle, um, this is great advice for the listeners. Um, I know that you are extremely active on social media, uh, providing a bunch of great tips, uh, tricks, and things for fo to follow for uh, medium-sized businesses. First of all, um, if the listeners want to follow you, um, is there social media, LinkedIn, Twitter that they can reach you on? I'm on LinkedIn, and also my firm has a blog. The firm, and Mark, God bless him, said CSG. The full name of the firm is Chiesa, Shannon, and John Tomasi. Please don't try to pronounce it. Unfortunately, the website isn't the full name either. It's CSG Law. And there's tons of resources that I try to share with anybody who's following me on LinkedIn. And I'm one of your followers, and I love the information that you post. So thank you for what you do for the cyber community. Um, Michelle, so we're, we're now in 2020. Um, we just passed, I guess, the tens and now kind of looking on. When we look at the next decade, what are your future predictions that's going to turn or how is cyber risk going to develop over the course of the next decade? Cyber risk has yet, to, let me rephrase that. Cyber response has yet to keep up with technology. It has yet to keep up with the use of technology. It has yet to, yet to keep up with AI and all of those lovely acronyms and abbreviations that you hear. And what has to happen for companies to navigate and not become the next victim, to not become the next headline in the Wall Street Journal, is to understand not only the shiny toys, but how to manage the shiny toys, and how to manage the touch points and the exposure points of those shiny toys. Technology is a wonderful thing. But I joke with a lot of my clients, in five years from now, I'm going to be living in a yurt and my money will be in the mattress where nobody can touch it. Because the fact is, you may be saying today comfortably listening to this podcast, I haven't been breached yet. And I'm sad to say the odds are good you have, you don't know it. I would agree. Um, Michelle, for, the, for these organizations that feel like they don't, uh, they don't have the exposure or cyber can't happen to us, what would be your one comment to them based off of your experience in the space? The odds are good you're the low-hanging fruit because you've assumed that you're not a target and therefore you haven't even bothered to look at your systems. And what those companies need to understand is that while there are targeted attacks, there are people that want to go after Equifax. There are people that want to go after Yahoo because they know their treasure troves of data. There are the quote-unquote amateur hackers who are just looking for a quick buck. And they said, oh, I heard there's a vulnerability in X, Y, or Z. How can I exploit that? And let's see who's got that software out there. And they just cast this very wide net. And if you get caught up in that net, and you've taken the position that I'm not a target. You better believe you are. So is there any tips or tricks that you found um, that uh, medium-sized business owners really find meaningful that maybe they could get their most bang for their buck? First of all, I'm not quite sure how we categorize medium-sized in this arena. And you see this from the insurance standpoint. You could have a very small private wealth manager that has a huge portfolio. And even though it might be a three, four, five-man shop, the net worth that they're managing and the information that they're managing needs them to think big, as opposed to you could have a medium-sized manufacturing business that really doesn't have personally identifiable information, doesn't have 
protected health information. They might have information about their employees, no. but not necessarily about their customers. And so in terms of thinking about what those businesses could or should do, again, understanding what that business is, what they touch answers that question. In terms of most cost-effective approaches for the company that has drunk the Kool-Aid and they've said, okay, I need to do something, but they don't know what yet, I will tell you right now the cheapest, most effective way to avoid a phishing attack you have our listeners' ears. Pick up the phone. Just because I got an email from Mark Shine and it says you might find this article interesting doesn't mean it's from Mark. And for those of us that are paid to be paranoid, you pick up the phone and you say to Mark, did you send me this link? And you wait for him to call you back. And I will take it one step further. There was a firm in New Jersey that I had done business with, and I know several of the partners at the firm. I got an email from one of the partners who I'd never done business with and said, please read this proposal and then call me. So being the paranoid person that I am, I went online, I looked up his known email address from his firm's website, I emailed him and said, did you send me this proposal? I took it one step further and I left him a phone message saying, hi Joe, this is Michelle Schaff, did you send me this proposal? Please call me back, here's my number. I get an email back to my email, which I sent to his correct email address saying, yes, it's a proposal. I look forward to hearing from you. People who aren't as paranoid as I am would have stopped there. Yep. And they would have clicked on that link and they would have launched the malware that was already in this firm's system that was redirecting email traffic to the bad actor. When I got the phone call back from Joe, he said to me, thank you so much for calling. We've been breached and we didn't know it. Picking up the phone takes two seconds, five minutes. You might have to wait a little bit for a call back, but hopefully the Joes of the world will appreciate that you called. And if it's a customer, they'll appreciate your vigilance and not have a cow that you didn't click on the link immediately. So, so Michelle, it sounds like it's not necessarily always a technology solution that is needed in order to prevent the data incident, but sometimes it's really the policies and procedures that the business has to make sure that they are dual verifying that this wire transfer is correct if they're receiving an email versus a call. And if they get the call, then they have to verify it via email. So it sounds like there are tips and tricks our listeners can do that can help mitigate their cyber risk exposure that isn't going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a new technology product. This is more about operational best practices rather than, again, going out and just buying technology to mitigate the risk. Well, and that's not to suggest they shouldn't spend some money on technology. They should be spending money on relatively easily adopted policies and procedures from a technology standpoint. They should be setting an appropriate password policy. Your password should not be one, two, three, four, five, six. Your passport should not be your kid's soccer team name. It shouldn't be the name of your favorite food that you share with everybody. And if you haven't seen the list, go online and say the most common passwords. And if yours is on there, you know you've got a really bad password. You also want to implement multi-factor authentication. And I will tell you what I find helpful in doing my training sessions for my clients is when you train employees and you talk only about protecting the business, the employees won't focus as much. If you say, and by the way, you should do this at home too. 
Do you bank online and do you have multi-factor authentication with your personal bank account? Does your Gmail account have multi-factor authentication? Yep. And so now it's not just about protecting the business, it's the business caring about its employees. So another inexpensive thing, lunch and learn for your personnel, training them, this is what you should and shouldn't do. Encrypting sensitive data may be more expensive, but I will tell you it's the get out of jail for free card if you look at all the breach notification laws. So there are grades of what you can do and what you can spend. And again, depending on the nature of the data that you have, how big your organization is, what your exposure is, that should help you determine what the spend is. And what listeners should be aware of is if you just started to drink the Kool-Aid, Rome wasn't built in one day. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to do everything in one day. But if the regulators come in, if your clients come in and say what you're doing, you want to have a roadmap. You want to have a plan. We're implementing multi-factor authentication now. We're going to be implementing device management next week. We're going to be encrypting our data at rest in three months. And show that plan, show that spend, and don't wait until you find out, oh, gee, I really was a target. Michelle, you gave our listeners a tremendous amount of information today. We certainly appreciate you coming and stopping by the show. Thank you for chatting, Cyber. Thank you so much, Mark.